The text for the sermon this morning is Hebrews 2, the verses 5 through 9. Let's read those verses once again. So Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Thus far, our text. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, last time I was here, I preached on Hebrews 2, the verses 1 through 4. There we saw that the, the writer to the Hebrews was making an urgent call to his readers not to drift away. There was something that was moving them to drift away from the gospel. Now, why was that? The original Jewish Christians to whom this letter was, was written may have been drifting away due to confusion within the church. We see that as we read through the, the book of Hebrews. There was confusion about the place of the Old Testament laws and ceremonies and sacrifices and, and then the place of Jesus. How does Jesus fit with Judaism? Is there continuity? Do they come together? What's the place of the Old Testament ceremonies? They also had wrong ideas about the place of angels in the world, in God's purposes. You see that as you go through chapter 1. They were not seeing clearly who Jesus was and who he is and what his coming meant. So the entire book of Hebrews is, is focused on bringing home the fullness and wonder of who Jesus Christ is the wonder that he came here and the wonder of what he's done. But the original readers of the book of Hebrews may have also been drifting away due to tension that came from without, from outside the church. In Hebrews 12.4, the writer points out to, the re to his readers, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He also deals with that at the end of Hebrews 10 talks about their confidence being shaken in the gospel. What's happening is that some form of persecution is there that comes from outside the church and it's threatening them. What, what was going on here is that these original Jewish Christians, the original audience for this letter, they were dealing with rival stories about how the world worked. They were having questions about how the world worked. Was Old Testament Judaism, was that right? Or, or was some sort of synthesis, some sort of combination of, of Christianity and Judaism, was that right? Throughout the Old Testament, you see that question, especially in the letters of Paul. The Judaizers, Paul calls them. The ones who wanted to bring the Old Testament ceremonies and law observance back. 
That was a question that was there, a real and pressing question for those first Christians. Do we have it right? Is what we were told about Christ, is that right? And on the other side, they were also receiving a rival story from the world. The world was was pressing in on them, persecuting them. They were making the church question whether or not they had it right. Were the scriptures right? Is God the God of the whole world? Is Jesus Christ king? And if he is king, why are we suffering? Why is there pain and suffering in our lives? Why does salvation seem so far away? So their vision of the gospel was being obscured, clouded over by those tensions that they lived with in their lives. Now as you hear me describe what they were going through, you may be already thinking, that's not too far from what I'm going through. We don't have it too much differently, do we? You know, our vision is also blocked by sin, by tensions, by the realities of this sin-darkened world. Our vision of the gospel is obscured. We ask ourselves as well, is Christianity right? Is the Bible the true story of the world, the only story? And if it is the true story of the world, then why do things look the way they do? And so the writer of Hebrews says to his readers, he says to us, yes, you have it right. Yes, things do not look good right now. But things are not as they seem. You need to see through the fog. And you need to see things as they really are. You need to see who you are. And you need to see what Christ has done. You need to hear the story again. And what he does in our text is he says, let me tell you the story again. Let me tell you who you are. Who God made you. What has happened and what he has done. What he has done in Christ. So we're going to hear the gospel this morning as we find it here in Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. We'll hear it under the following theme, our glorious place and purpose in God's purposes. We're going to see three things that are happening in our text. We'll see, first of all, our original glory at creation. Then we'll see our interrupted glory in the fall. And finally, our restored glory in Christ. So first of all, our original glory at creation. As we look at how our text begins, we see that right on the heels of of Hebrews 2, 1 to 5, right after telling them not to drift away, he has these words, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. So he's been speaking about the glorious gospel. What Christ, the age that Christ has ushered in, the last days he calls them in Hebrews 1. Those days have begun. Christ has ushered in that age. And he's saying that age, that new world, it's not for angels. So if it's not for angels, then who is it for? Well, the answer, as he works out, is mankind. Mankind is the focus of God's purposes. 
And he actually repeats that. He, he makes that even more explicit in verse 16. He says there, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. He's bringing home to his readers that mankind, you, are the focus of God's purposes. That's really what he works out in the verses 6 through 8. What he says there is, but, there is a place in that, that use of the word but is, is with a sense of confirming the way things really are. He says, but, there is a place where someone has testified. And then what he does is he quotes Psalm 8, which we read earlier. Now, Psalm 8 is a song of praise to the Lord. It's written by David. The words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. They, they bracket the psalm. They, they begin the psalm. They end it. And then in between those two confessions of praise, David works out what God has done. He says there, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. He looks into the, the sky at night. He sees the wonder of what God has made. But then his eyes drift down, and he sees mankind. He sees man. And there's incredulity on the part of David. There is wonder there. He says, what is man? And when he says man, we need to understand that he means mankind. As you read that again, you can read it this way. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? So in other words, mindful of all men. And then he says, the son of man that you care for him. So that's mindful of even an individual human being. And he continues, you made mankind a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. So what David, is, what David is saying, what he's doing is he's balancing on the one hand the smallness, the smallness of man, with the wonder of what God has made in man. You know, we, we often look at Psalm 8. And we stop with those words, what is man, that you are mindful of him. And we use those verses to speak about how insignificant we are. And that is partly there in those words. But that's not what David's doing with those words. No, David is looking at the wonder of what God has done with that small, insignificant man. Because what has God done? Sister, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. God has put all of creation under man. That's the wonder. There's echoes there of, of Genesis 1, 26 to 30. We read those earlier. When God creates man, what does he say? He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. 
And once he's created Adam and Eve, he says, rule. That's basically what you see in Genesis 1, 26 to 30. He's saying to man, he's created this entire universe. In the middle of it, he puts man. And he says, I have made this. I put you here as my representative. Rule. Enjoy. Fill. Subdue. David's amazed by that. Amazed by the place of mankind within creation. That a creature has such an esteemed and dignified place. David's referring to what man was meant and made to be. Those words, that God is mindful of him, are filled with wonder. Not simply a wonder that God tolerates and cares for man. No, but the wonder of the high office and calling that he has given to mankind. Man, a lowly creature, has royal dignity. So what the author of Hebrews does is he takes those verses from Psalm 8 and he reminds his readers about the original place and purpose of mankind. Their glorious place and purpose. reminds them that God's purposes are focused on them, on mankind, on Abraham's descendants. You know, angels are powerful. They are indeed powerful beings. We sang holy, holy at the beginning. They get to throw down. They get to bow down before the throne of God. They are in his presence always. They are without sin. But the earth is man's domain. And angels, as incredible as they are, nowhere are we told that they are created in God's image. Mankind alone, created in God's image. When God created man, he created something incredible. Something that was in his image, a creature he could have fellowship with. Fellowship that actually meant something to him. Mankind, as he was created, has incredible dignity, importance, and honor. But the writer of Hebrews then goes on to point out the obvious problem. Notice what he does. Right after those lines that he quotes from Psalm 8. Begins verse 8b. He says, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is sub- not subject to him. So he repeats it. He's emphasizing that that God placed man to rule his creation. But then he continues, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. The writer of Hebrews is stating the obvious problem. Perhaps something you've been thinking as I've been talking about the original glory and purpose of mankind. That's not what the world looks like. That's not true. Mankind doesn't rule. Mankind is at the whims of creation. There's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with mankind. When you look at mankind today, you see that his relationship with God is not the way it should be. His relationship with fellow men is not the way it's supposed to be. His relationship with creation is not the way it's supposed to be. Something's broken. Something's wrong. We see it in our lives. We see that pain in our lives. Something we're painfully aware of. David says we're kings, says we're crowned with glory and honor. I sure don't feel it. 
That's not what life looks like. No, God's created purpose for mankind. What God meant and made man to be. Something has interrupted that. Something has broken that. And that something is the fall. Mankind fell from his high position. Our Belgian Confession puts it beautifully. It says there, Article 14, We believe that God created man of the dust from the ground, and he made and formed him after his own image and likeness, good, righteous, and holy. His will could conform to the will of God in every respect, but when man was in this high position, he did not appreciate it, nor did he value his excellency. He gave ear to the words of the devil and willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse. So in the fall, man did not value his place or his purpose. He did not value what God gave him. In the fall, what you see happening is mankind rebelling against God. And in that, rejecting their true dignity and honor, you see man becoming less than he was made and meant to be. So what we see around us is not what God created us to be. We see fallen creation around us. We see fallen mankind. We see darkness. We see pain. We see sorrow. And and into all of that, into that darkness, into this fallen reality, the writer of Hebrews shouts out the next words that we read in our text. But, verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. But we see Jesus. This is the first time that the writer to the Hebrews uses the name Jesus. He's always referred to him as the Son. But now he uses his human name. We see Jesus. We don't see the Son, no, we see Jesus. There's an emphasis on his human nature. If you read it literally, we see the one who was made a little lower than the angels. That is Jesus He became one of us, the Son of God. He became one of us. What does Jesus refer to himself as again and again in the Gospels? The Son of Man. He's emphasizing his humanity. He's emphasizing that he is the one who came from above and became one of us. took on our human nature that had lost its glory, its dignity. He took on our suffering, our pain. He became what we had become, what we had made ourselves by the fall. But he did it without sin. But he still lived in the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of the fall. He became one of us. That's a comfort to us as we go through this life. God cares deeply 
about what sin has done to his very good creation. God cares about what sin has done to his people. He cares about what sin has done to his creation. What you're going through because of the fall. What you're going through in your own lives. In your relationship with God. The sin that you struggle with. What you go through in your relationships with others. The brokenness that you find there. The pain that you find there. The problems you have in your family. The problems you have in your job. In your life. Your social life. Whatever it is. The problems you have with your health. With the brokenness of our bodies. That is is here because of the fall. When you go through all of that, God cares about that. And how do you know He cares? Because He sent His own Son to become one of us, to live in the middle of that. He cares more about what you're going through than you perhaps even do yourself. Because he knows what caused it. He knows what it really is. And he cares so much about it that he would let his son die to make it right. He sent his son to deal with the cause of our sin and our suffering. And he's one that knows. Our Savior is one who knows our situation intimately, it's not from a distance. Sometimes you'll have it in life that somebody will say to you when you explain what you're going through, they'll say, I know what you're going through. That's not really true, is it? How often have you had it when somebody says, oh, I know what you're going through? You say, no, you don't actually, because you're not me. You don't actually really know. You can kind of imagine, but you don't really know what I'm going through. But you can never say that to Jesus Christ. He knows more than you know what you're going through. You can't say, you can't sympathize with me. You can't say to him, you don't understand. That's what the writer of Hebrews points out. Hebrews 2.18, 4.15. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us. He's been through what we've been through. He's lived in this sin-broken world. It's an encouragement to us as we go through this world. As we go through a world that groans under the weight of sin. As we live in a world where mankind is not what it meant to be. And that encouragement that the writer of Hebrews gives to us here is to see Jesus. He says it again. He says it a number of times within the letter. Hebrews 3.1. Fix your thoughts on Jesus Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to see what God has done in sending his son. When you go through pain and sorrow, see Jesus. When you see that you fall so short of what God has called you to be, see Jesus. When the cares and worries of this world cast a fog or dark over your hope, See Jesus. When things don't make sense, see Jesus. See that God loves you so much that he sent his son into our unglory. But also see that he sent his son into this so that we might have our glory restored and renewed. 
Because that's what we see. And the last point, our renewed glory in Christ. Because 2 verse 9, he continues. So he says there, 2 verse 9, but we see Jesus, the one who was made a little lower than the angels. We see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Do you see what he's saying, what he's doing here? He's saying Jesus, the Jesus that you see, that you set your eyes on, that you set your thoughts on. At this very moment, he is enthroned in heaven. He has glory, honor, and kingship. The crown that you were created to wear, the crown that we were created to wear, he's now wearing it. There is one human being who has been what he was meant and made to be, and that person is Jesus. God's purposes for mankind have been realized in Jesus Christ. Is cause for such praise, such wonder. God achieved his purposes in Christ. But as we see Christ enthroned, we also have to realize that he took a painful path to get there. He had to defeat our sin first. He had to die our death first. That was the way that Christ took, the path to glory, the way that God ordained. The crown was received through the cross. By the grace of God, he tasted death for us. And tasted, that doesn't mean experience a little, you know, take a little sip. No, he drank it all. He experienced it all. Down to the very last drop. That's by God's grace. He didn't need to do that. God the Father didn't need to provide the way. Didn't need to give up his only son. And the son didn't need to do that. But he did it by the grace of God. And it's not just that he tasted it for himself. No, he tasted it for everyone. He took us with him when he did that. Everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ, you you need to know that he has experienced what you were supposed to experience. We have a little sip in this life of the curse of sin, but he drank it all. And because of that, he has cleared the way for us to have renewed glory. That's what we see right after our text. Verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory. That's what Christ did. God did that through Christ. Jesus has become the author of our salvation. The pioneer of our salvation. Our forerunner. He's accomplished salvation for us. And we follow him. Jesus has restored us to what we were made and meant to be. A creation. In union with him, when we put our faith in him, we have all of that. We have that glory. It's the only way. The only way to be fully human. To be fully what mankind was was meant and made to be. Is to believe in Jesus Christ. To be connected to him by faith. In Christ, you have that. You have that new life. John 3, 16, we we know that verse so well, for God so loved the world. But as we continue in those verses, 
that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. In other words, you are separated from life when you don't believe in Christ. But because Christ has come, because God so loved the world, you can have new life, renewed glory in his Son. When you don't belong to Christ, you remain what you are now, what you are apart from Christ, fallen less than you were made and meant to be. So fix your eyes on Jesus. When you look around yourself and you see that things are not the way they were meant to be, when you see that life is, is bearing down on you, when you have conflicting stories about how the world works, why the world is the way it is, see Jesus. See the one who was made a little less than angels, but who is now crowned with glory and honor. And see that you have this with him. God has restored the glorious place and purpose of mankind in his son. It's something for us to realize that we have been made royalty once again. We lost it in the fall, but in Christ we have it back. So be that royalty. Live that way. There's, there's an old expression, be who you are. In Christ, you are kings and queens. Be kings and queens. Be princes and princesses within the kingdom of God. Be who you are. As parents raise their children, they raise their children to be who they are. To know the promises that God has given them in Christ. To see what Christ has done, what Christ has made them. To be who they are. Don't let anything take that away from you. One of the challenges with living in the sin-broken world is we begin to lose our view of the wonder of who we are and what God has made us in Christ. As one person has put it, we begin to live as orphans. Orphans don't know what they have. They need to scrape. They have nothing. They scrape. They fight for everything that they can get. They're alone. But the gospel says don't live as orphans. Don't live as those who do not have a king for a father. Do not live as those who are not royalty. Don't let anybody take that away from you. Don't let people in your community, those who bully you, those who oppress you, those who mock you, don't let them take that away from you. Don't let the world outside take that away from you. Let them think that you are less than you are. Hold on to what you have in Christ. May the Spirit illuminate your mind. May it chase away the darkness and may you see more clearly Jesus and what God has done 
in Jesus, and may you see that you have everything in Christ. Amen. Let us now respond to the proclamation of the word by singing Psalm 79, the stanzas 1, 4, and 5. Thank you.